Hi everyone. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's just got to turn my sound off. <laughs> right, we're all having fun tonight. Um, we are talking to Rod Driver about the pharmaceutical industry. I suppose all of you know that it is the most corrupt. Well, one of the most. We can't say it's the most because what isn't corrupt now? But the pharmaceutical industry has a history of, of being corrupt. And it's it's one of the most corrupt industries in the world. And the biggest companies are fined billions of dollars for fraud and almost every year. And they count that as a cost of doing business. So and, and the people that if you think about the, the people in 1960 um, who were the women who were given a pill to help them with their morning sickness and we had thalidomide children born the next year in 1961 and you know then after a few years they sold it in Spain and so we had babies born in Spain with thalidomide with no limbs so there's a long history so tonight Rod's going to be talking about the 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 matter of the pandemic brainwashing that the pharmaceutical companies have been involved in so if we could bring in rod please hi hi my sound went off i was reading from youtube your description and uh the sound went off and i thought oh that put me right off but so this is your elephant in the room series and it's a beginner's guide so did you want to just introduce it or just launch take it away uh, so, so i suspect that most of the listeners will be uh familiar with the series that we've been doing over the last uh year or so so uh, tonight we're going to um talk about uh two related things so the first is a general overview of the pharmaceutical industry which as you said is one of the most criminal industries in the world and then we're going to look in the second half specifically at what's been going on in the last two years in relation to COVID. And the, the first half sort of sets the scene. Once you understand how criminal they are, then it, it really sort of uh, enables us to look at the whole pandemic uh, situation uh, sort of much more objectively. And uh, so uh, most people who listen to my presentations most weeks will probably be themselves reasonably critical of British and American war crimes, reasonably critical of the uh, economic system. But it may be that there'll be a few listeners tonight who have not really come across information that challenges the mainstream narrative or the mainstream version of events in relation to COVID. So some of you That's might find the media is corrupt, as corrupt as anything any, as well. Yeah. So if uh, if you find the second half quite challenging, don't worry. Stick with us, and by the end of the evening, hopefully everything will be uh, will be clear. So I came across a great quote uh, that was written a couple of years ago by Richard Horton, the editor of the Lancet, which is the leading medical journal in the UK, and he wrote, "The history of medicine is littered with wonderful early results, which over a period of time turn out not so wonderful, or in fact even adverse." There are a whole string of recent examples where preliminary data led to a lot of excitement and caused changes in clinical practice. And then eventually we realized they had done more harm than good. Why is it we never learned these lessons? And so there's uh, there's a number of different aspects of the system that I'm going to sort of work through 
just in the first part of the presentation. So one of the first things that uh, researchers have noted is that the pharmaceutical industry tends to research the wrong problems. So one of the uh, aid agencies, Medicine Sans Frontier, did some research and they realized that between 1975 and 2004, over 1,500 new drugs had been introduced, but only 21 of those new drugs were for what they call neglected diseases. That's diseases in poor countries. So there's an enormous amount of money being spent on research that produces drugs like Viagra, but there's very little money being spent to deal with uh, something like tuberculosis. So the focus is on what we call lifestyle drugs uh, in the West, much more than it is on solving the problems uh, of the poor and so on. Now, this is improving because of the World Health Organization, but it's still a long way from, uh, from adequate. And then the whole system of research. Most people think that the, um, the pharmaceutical companies themselves do all the research, but actually that's not true. And again, one researcher wrote, the whole ecosystem in which innovation is housed, patents, copyright, finance, universities, research, knowledge transfer, ownership rules, regulation to ensure common standards is co-created between the public and the private. And in fact, particularly in America, universities that are state funded do an enormous proportion of the research. And the same is true uh, in many other countries. And yet, if a successful drug is developed, it's the private companies that end up keeping the profits. So there was a great example uh, of a drug. It was called Cerazyme a few years ago. Now, the private company that uh, ended up with the patent for it was selling it for $200,000 a year. So hardly anybody could afford it. It was sold in a way that would maximize their profits. But actually, the research for Cerazyme mostly came from state-funded uh, research. So it's a situation that we've talked about in the past where you've got society funding the costs of something, but the profits are going into private pockets, the pockets of shareholders and uh, executives. So it's another form of sort of a rigged economic system. It's another massive subsidy to the rich and the powerful. So in, to my way of thinking, the whole pharmaceutical industry should be focused on researching the most useful medicines and then providing them as cheaply as possible to the largest number of people who will really benefit from those medicines. But in fact, the system doesn't do any of those things. So there's a number of uh, things that have been talked about even in the mainstream press, which is not very good at talking about most of the things that we discuss. And the system deprives for poor countries of medicines. The companies are so keen to maintain their patents that they don't want to provide cheap medicines for the poorest countries. Now, interestingly enough, in the World Trade Organization, there is an exception to this. So the World Trade Organization has a set of rules relating to what's called intellectual property. So that's patents. And they say, actually, poor countries can make cheap copies of medicines for emergencies. But strangely enough, pressure from rich countries and big companies means that this is almost never used. And so most famously, if you go back to the era when AIDS was in the news all the time, 
the Western companies were making AIDS medicines and selling them for 15,000 US dollars a year. Companies in India said they could make identical medicines for $300 a year, a tiny fraction of the cost. But again, the lobbying from advanced nations and from uh, big companies meant that very little uh, in the way of cheap medicines was actually produced. The focus on maintaining expensive medicines and patents was more important. And in fact, when Nelson Mandela tried to organize for cheap medicines to be made, uh, South Africa was threatened with sanctions, which would have caused immense harm to the nation. So in fact, he didn't go ahead with that. And millions of people died in Africa because of it. So all sorts of serious harms come about because poor people cannot get medicines because the focus is on patents. So the main goal of companies is to keep prices high in rich countries. They wouldn't care if poor countries got cheap medicines, provided they could keep prices high in rich countries. But if everybody saw that you could get really cheap medicines in poor countries, they would be saying, why aren't we getting cheap medicines too? So that is the primary goal of the pharmaceutical industry. And one of the things about what they produce is a great deal of it is no better than what I would call junk. In fact, to use the technical terminology, many of the really expensive medicines are no better than either a placebo, which means like a sugar pill, which doesn't have any medical effect at all, or a, what's called a generic, which is a very cheap version of uh, the medicine. But despite the fact there's lots and lots of evidence saying that the expensive drugs are no better, doctors keep prescribing the expensive ones. So, for example, there was a study by the American organization, the National Institute of Health, and they looked at all the medicines that were available to treat blood pressure. And some of them were expensive and some of them were very cheap. And what they found was the cheap ones were just as good as the expensive ones. So the cheap ones would cost about $37 a year. The expensive ones could cost up to $700 a year. But the, the doctors tended to prescribe the expensive ones. And there have been all sorts uh, of uh, examples of um, companies coming up with medicines that turned out to be not only expensive, but actually extremely dangerous. So there was a famous case of a diabetes drug called Avandia, which turned out to be uh, have completely ineffective, but it caused large numbers of heart attacks, strokes, and even deaths. And then there was a, another famous case just over a, a decade ago where we had another virus that everyone was hyping called H1N1. Some of you might remember that from the media a long time ago. Well, government stockpiled a medicine called Tamiflu. Well, in fact, the company that made Tamiflu was called Roach, and they had withheld data showing that the drug was not very effective and was more dangerous uh, than they claimed. But withholding data by pharmaceutical companies is not actually a crime. So they could get away with doing this sort of thing. So they get fines occasionally, but uh, the fines don't seem to make much difference to their behavior. And then another element of what goes on is that whilst they should be spending almost all their money on research, they end up spending more money on marketing. Now, there's something very uh, sort of, to my mind, ironic about this. If you make a really expensive drug, then you have a very big trial where you demonstrate how effective the drug is. 
Every doctor in the world can see the results of that trial. Every healthcare system in the world has people who look at the outcomes of trials. And if a drug is really effective, every government in the world will use that drug uh, and they'll change their sort of the rules on which drugs are used for which illnesses and they'll use those drugs. So effective drugs require no marketing expenditure at all. But in fact, particularly in America, but in many other countries too, drug companies have to spend vast amounts of money on marketing their drugs because they're not very effective. And this can include all sorts of things, including bribes to doctors, uh, again, particularly in the United States. And as well as companies creating lifestyle drugs that I mentioned at the, at the beginning, so Viagra would be the most famous sort of lifestyle drug in the West, other companies, when they realize how big a profit opportunity a drug is, will try to copy it. And so, in fact, there are copies of Viagra called Cialis and Levitra made by other companies, and they spend enormous amounts of money marketing these drugs uh, during events such as the Super Bowl uh, and so on. And what's supposed to happen in a market economy, if lots of companies are making something and competing with each other, is it's meant to bring prices down. But when you've got three or four companies that control the market, they can have a sort of informal agreement to keep prices high. So all of Viagra, Cialis and Levita are sold at very high costs uh, and the profits are extraordinarily high for the companies that make them. One of the things that Lizzie mentioned at the beginning was that these companies get fined. And um, there was some research done uh, a couple of years ago showing that the uh, pharmaceutical industry is probably the second most fined industry in the world. So the, the financial system, they were fined about $300 billion in the last 20 years. And then the pharmaceutical industry has been fined $50 billion in the last 20 years. So no other industries come close for the numbers of fines. That doesn't necessarily mean they're the most corrupt. If you look at the weapons industry, they're incredibly corrupt, but they don't even get fined. If you look at the mining companies, they commit all sorts of crimes and frauds overseas, but again, they don't get fined uh, and so on. So uh, you've, got, you've got four or five different industries vying to be the most corrupt industries in the world, but pharmaceuticals is right up there. So in 2012, the pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline, which is sometimes called GSK, was fined $3 billion in the US for mis-selling drugs, for fraud, bribery, overcharging, for paying bribes to doctors, for covering up negative research evidence, and for making false claims about their medicines. And GSK was also fined in India, South Africa, and even in the UK, which is highly unusual, but the, the fines in the UK are very much smaller. So what these companies realize is that crime pays. The fines are never enough to force them to change their, their behavior. And in 1997, they were at, it was actually discovered that the biggest companies in the world were running what's called a global price-fixing cartel. They were keeping prices high all over the world, and that was a formal agreement between them to make excess, uh, excess profits. So there's a standard pattern that with new patented medicines, the companies exaggerate the benefits and they understate the harms and they hide negative results. So consistently, it's found that medicines turn out in the real world 
to be at least four times more harmful than the companies claimed uh, when the medicine was first introduced. So it's estimated that adverse events hospitalize about two million people in America every year, and about a quarter of a million people uh, in the UK. So by adverse events, I'm talking about the side effects of these medicines. So many of these medicines have very potent side effects. So for example, there was a painkiller called Vioxx that was introduced a few years ago. It has subsequently been withdrawn, but before it was withdrawn, it, it's estimated it had killed 55,000 people. And again, the company that made it, Merck, knew that it was a very dangerous drug, but again, they withheld the data. So overwhelmingly, when people try to look at research carried out by pharmaceutical companies and research carried out by independent researchers, they find the research by the pharmaceutical companies is always biased. If they're footing the bill, then the results will always be much more in favor of their new medicines than it would be otherwise. Now, one of the reasons they can get away with this is something we've talked about in an earlier presentation called regulatory capture. This is where the regulator isn't really regulating the industry properly at all. It actually sees the world from uh, the point of view of the companies it's regulating. And in fact, what you realize, we've also talked about a concept called the revolving door, where senior people in government go into business, senior people in business go into government. This happens a lot with the pharmaceuticals. So a former a chief of the American regulator, which is called the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. He went to work for pharma. And the American Congress has basically become like a, a group of politicians who've been bribed by the pharmaceutical company uh, to implement the rules and regulations that they want. So the American regulator, regulator is totally underfunded. It has no long-term safety plans, and it has all sorts of conflicts of interest. And one statistic that slightly surprised me when I came across it was actually the pharmaceutical industry does more lobbying. This is more attempts to influence government policy than any other industry. So in 2018 alone, they spent $280 million trying to manipulate the opinions of politicians. Now, however bad the American regulator is, the British regulator is even worse. So in 2012, they proudly announced that they had given 467 warnings and 151 cautions. Now, I should point out, I don't actually know what the difference is between a warning and a caution. To me, they sound very similar. The total amount of fines that they had given out in that year was £73,000. That's such a tiny drop in the ocean. It is clearly not going to have any effect on the behavior of those companies. And the, the UK regulator, which is called the MHRA, has never successfully prosecuted any pharmaceutical company. So they're clearly not even attempting to regulate the industry uh, properly because those companies are committing the same crimes and the same frauds in Britain that they're committing uh, elsewhere on the whole. So the whole system, the whole system of medical development is really not fit for purpose. The profit motive corrupts everything. If you created a nationally run system, which would be like an extension of the NHS, without the profit motive, then you could provide the same medicines for a fraction of the price. There would be no copycat drugs, no expensive marketing, no lobbying, no fraud, no legal battles over patents, and no depriving poor countries of medicines. 
So you could end up with a system that really was geared towards making the best medicines possible and making them available as widely as possible and as cheaply uh, as possible. And so an international system would need to devote significant resources to unprofitable medicines for poor countries. And, and yet, because uh, we have such a powerful propaganda system, which I talk about regularly, you never see in the mainstream press any discussion of the possibility that the, the, the pharmaceutical system should be an extension of the NHS. Uh, okay, so that's the first half. That's a general overview of the pharmaceutical uh, industry showing how criminal uh, it is. And that's been the case for decades and decades. So for the second half, we're going to talk about the last couple of years and we're going to talk about uh, COVID. And some of you will remember that a while ago I did a presentation on exaggerated threats where we talked about the exaggerated threat of a communist invasion, exaggerated threat of weapons of mass destruction in relation to Iraq, and the exaggerated threat of terrorism. Well, COVID is sort of the next great exaggerated threat. So the exact detail is different in each country. And I'm going to focus very specifically on what took place in the UK. But I know that uh, what happened in the US was very similar and the data and the numbers are all quite similar. Uh, but the, uh, the detail I'm going to focus on is in the UK. So it's important to understand in approximately March 2020, we started hearing some horror stories from China and Italy. And there was definitely some uncertainty as to what was going on and what was coming our way and so on. But it very quickly became clear when things started to happen in Britain and lots of other countries that most of the people who were harmed by COVID, certainly most of the people who died from COVID, were very, very old. So in Britain, the average life expectancy is approximately 81. Well, the average age of death of people who died from COVID was greater than 80. So these were people who, on the whole, were quite close to death anyway. So approximately 7% of deaths were people under 60, and only a tiny proportion of those were in good health at the outset. The vast majority of people who died already had quite serious existing uh, illnesses. So it's important to understand this first point, that the threat to old and ill people was many, many times greater, orders of magnitude greater than the threat to young and healthy people, because everything else we're going to talk about sort of stems from that. So just to understand the sort of data a little bit more clearly, because some people have no idea of how many deaths there were and so on. And some people think, oh, it was millions, wasn't it? Well, if you look around the world, the total was in the millions. But in Britain, in a typical year, rather over half a million people die. About 550,000 people die every year, mostly of things related to what we would call old age. The extra number of deaths in the first year was a little bit less than 100,000. Now, 100,000 is still quite a lot, but it's actually quite small when compared to the total number of deaths that we expect every year anyway. So once people realized that the, the, uh, the threat was not uh, as great, once a handful of experts realized the threat was not as great as governments were telling us, they started to say, well, we need to 
apply some common sense to our reactions. And a number of them came up with something that was called the Great Barrington Declaration, where they said, what we need are sensible measures to protect the vulnerable, but we don't need to kind of overreact and shut down our society. And that declaration ended up with 50,000 signatories of people who are kind of experts in their fields, doctors, epidemiologists, and so on. So lots and lots of specialists saying, we really need to think very carefully about not over overreacting to what's going on. But the, the people who created the Great Barrington Declaration were immediately smeared by people like Fauci, who went out of their way to, to uh, massively uh, exaggerate uh, the threat. So if you look at a country like Sweden, which didn't overreact to what was going on, their outcomes were no worse than everywhere else. And in fact, because they didn't close down their economy, they did very well. So I'm just going to talk you through three or four major points in terms of what went on. So the first point is that the threat was hugely exaggerated. So some of you will be aware that in Britain, we have a group of psychologists called the Nudge Unit, or the Behavioral Insights Team, as it's technically known. And they've admitted that uh, they were consulted and they recommended scare everyone. So it became a classic exaggerated threat. And then as the summer of 2020, as we went through the summer of 2020, when the number of people dying after the first wave had really dropped down close to zero, the government introduced mass testing, even of people with no symptoms. The problem with any type of testing like that is that you get large numbers of false positives. And so nobody really knew quite what the genuine number of positives was. And then we had teams of people who were called mathematical modelers who kept trying to predict how many numbers they, uh, how many people would die, how many people would get ill and what the, the load on the health service would be. But all they did was give worst case scenarios to the government. And that's a terrible way of using mathematical modeling. It's something I used to teach. You can't just use worst case scenarios, but that's what they did. So the government kept putting out lots of propaganda saying, oh, the sky is falling, you know, everybody's, uh, everybody's in danger. And the media repeated this propaganda because the government were paying them huge amounts of money to do COVID advertising, which was all about scaring people. So we ended up doing lockdowns. So this is sometimes called non-pharmaceutical interventions, all the things that don't involve medicines. So that was masks, distancing, closing schools, closing businesses, everybody living in little bubbles and so on. Now, what's interesting is before the lockdowns, before COVID, there was almost no evidence to support any of these measures. Perhaps at best, when uh, a virus uh, first comes to a country, all those measures together might slow it down slightly. But the evidence suggested it wouldn't actually change the number of people who died. Well, the strange thing is there was no new evidence, nothing to counter the historical data saying those measures will make no difference. But the government did those things anyway. And people are still debating why governments did that. And we'll talk a little bit about why they might have done that at the end. So there's a few uh, kind of island countries, so Australia, New Zealand and a handful of others, where they adopted quite a strict quarantine. And that seemed to work for a while. But then there's always the problem about how do you end the quarantine? And we're seeing in countries like Australia and New Zealand so that they've had problems since trying to end 
their quarantine. So the, the historical planning, which existed in nearly every country, every country has a sort of pandemic plan, it was all thrown out of the window. And um, we adopted a set of ideas that really weren't part of anybody's plan and were known to be ineffective. And then as well as that, there was something very strange that happened in terms of existing medicines. So there were a number of doctors in lots of different countries who were saying, listen, if you use this combination of medicines and you catch people early, and one of the medicines that we're talking about a lot was called ivermectin, that seems to work quite well. You could see the results in some hospitals were much better than the results in other hospitals. But there was a massive amount of censorship on YouTube and Twitter uh, to, to shut down any discussion of existing medicines. And in fact, doctors in some countries, including America, were threatened with losing their jobs if they spoke out in favor of existing medicines publicly. So there's something very odd going on behind the scenes. And we now have evidence that researchers who actually were doing research to show that ivermectin and other medicines in combination might work were actually pressured by their funders to say that it didn't work. And so, again, there's something else going on behind the scenes that people are trying to understand. And then there's a very important element which is consistent with what I was talking about in the first half, which is that the injections, which we label vaccines, but which are actually very different from any anything else that is labelled a vaccine, are much, much more dangerous than is claimed. So the technology, which some of you will have heard of, which is called mRNA, which is an important part of at least two of the vaccines. So the Pfizer one is the one that's being used on the largest scale. mRNA has been researched for 20 years, but no one has ever found a successful use for it. It has little bits of effects here and there on some illnesses that it's being tested on, but really not very effective. So it's absolutely bizarre that this entirely new technology should be given to billions of people without really thorough, thorough research. And in most countries where it was used, because it hadn't been properly tested, it was given what's called emergency use authorization. And you can only use that if there are no existing medicines. So it seems that governments were so keen to use these new injections that that is part of the reason why they were saying nothing that we already have works. So in America, Europe, Britain, Australia and many other countries, they already have some systems for reporting side effects or adverse events. So if you combine those, you see that there are at least 60,000 deaths reported as vaccine deaths and millions of reports of side effects. That's many more times than all other vaccines added together. So side effects are off the charts. Now with any one claimed side effect, one person experiencing a problem soon after a vaccination, it's hard to know with absolute certainty what caused it. It might've been the vaccine, but it might've been something else. But it's important to understand that many of the reports of these side effects happened within a few days of the vaccine. So it's highly likely that the vast majority of these were caused by the vaccine. And in fact, many doctors and nurses who do report the side effects have said, well, actually, we know lots of colleagues and they're not reporting anything. They, they just will not use the system because they don't want to admit there might be a problem with the injections that they're giving to everybody. So it's highly likely 
that the reported side effects is a massive understatement of the true extent of side effects. And again, more and more evidence is coming out of the number of people who, who are suffering from some sort of side effects. Nearly everyone I know has relatives or friends or so who had a very bad reaction to a vaccine or a booster uh, and so on. So some countries have stopped using some of the vaccines in some age groups due to the adverse events. And this is based on the short-term reactions. We have no knowledge whatsoever of what the long-term harms of these medicines might be. So the dangers of the vaccines have been understated, typical of the pharmaceutical industry. But the other side of that is that they've also exaggerated the benefits of the vaccines. So it's now quite clear the vaccines do not stop people getting infected and they don't stop people passing the virus on. Now, it may be the case that they have an effect on serious illness and death for a few months. But even that is contested because they're using weird definitions. So if you had a vaccine 13 days ago, you are labelled as unvaccinated. It's only after 14 days that they count you as vaccinated. So if lots of people get ill within 14 days of taking the vaccination, they say, oh, well, we're going to say that all of the people who were getting ill in 14 days, they were unvaccinated and they got ill. So it's very, very difficult to know for sure what the true effect is uh, of the of the injections when you mislabel, uh, when you use such misleading vaccinations. So there's really no case for vaccinating healthy or young people. They are not a threat from the virus. It's incredibly rare that the virus will harm them. Their immune systems are perfectly capable of dealing with the virus. Right? They are much more likely to be harmed by the vaccines. And governments in a number of countries have admitted that, that the sort of cost-benefit analysis for vaccinating young or healthy people doesn't work. We shouldn't be vaccinating young and healthy people. So uh, Pfizer and one or two other companies did carry out very, very small trials, completely inadequate what the Pfizer trial showed, because the result is coming out in the public now, is that in the two groups of people, those who are taking the vaccines and those who are taking the placebo, that the number of deaths in each group was the same. The, the vaccines were not saving any lives. So Pfizer and the American regulator tried to hide the data, saying, oh, we can't release that data for at least 55 years. They would only do that if they knew that the data contained evidence that the, medicine, the vaccines were either ineffective or dangerous. So a judge in America has ruled that that information has to be released in the course of the next year. And so people are going through that evidence and finding out more and more about what actually went on during the trials. So in many countries, there's been a great deal of coercion to force people to get vaccinated. So in Britain, unvaccinated care workers were fired and the government was going to fire doctors and nurses. But eventually they, they backed off because there was too much, too much pressure. In other countries, the situation got much worse. So uh, in, um, in Italy, I know someone who's actually saying they're being fined for not being vaccinated 
And so in a number of European countries, particularly, there are severe restrictions on unvaccinated people. And uh, I heard something similar in Australia. So the exact details are different in each country. And a number of governments were trying to introduce vaccine passports. And there were very big protests uh, where people were burning these uh, these passports in some European countries and so on. So an immense amount of pressure by the government for people to get vaccinated, which doesn't really make much sense if the vaccines don't stop people getting infected and passing it on. There's no reason to coerce anyone at all. So the lockdowns will have caused immense long-term harms. So people lost their jobs. Many more people ended up on benefits. Many people had decreases in pay. Many children will have had their education damaged. Now, if you're uh, a child in a rich family who has the resources to get you a good computer and you, your school does lots of online lessons, you're probably fine. But the outcomes are always worse for the poorest people who either don't have the resources to get the computers or they just don't have a house big enough that somebody can work quietly on a computer at home. You're surrounded by noise and chaos and so on. So there's more and more evidence coming out that childhood development has seriously been damaged. Babies not developing language skills because everyone around them was masked and so on. And the evidence of this will, will come out for years to come. In Britain, normal medical procedures were sidelined. So we now have waiting lists that have increased by millions and millions of people. And we had huge numbers of elderly people, incredibly isolated, couldn't be visited by friends in care homes and so on. So their psychological health would be terribly, terribly damaged. So massive increases in depression. So I'm glad to say in the UK, I use an expression that the dominoes are falling. A number of people who were insiders in the system are coming forward to apologise for what they've done. So the people who did the mathematical modelling are apologising for only using worst case scenarios. The uh, the people who were in the nudge unit, the psychologists, are apologising for using fear to scare people. The European Medicines Agency has admitted that multiple boosters could be very damaging to our immune systems. That actually, that each shot, each injection, could be weakening our immune systems. And even the director of the American CDC, the Center for Disease Control, which is sort of the leading organization in the US who advise on this, have said they were just too optimistic about the vaccinations. And they said we had too little caution and too much optimism. So more and more people coming forward to admit, hey, we've got it completely wrong. So the big question then that I'm going to finish with is why have all these weird things been going on over the last two years? And if you look at the internet, you can see all sorts of fascinating theories. And it's very difficult to know. And I don't claim to have all the answers. So at a simplistic level, there's a focus on corporate profits. So the, the um, pharmaceutical companies and the vaccine producing companies wanted to make massive profits. And this is one of the most profitable medicines that's ever been uh, created. And they can easily bribe governments and offer them sort of non-executive directorships when uh, when they retire. So politicians will tend to often be influenced by pharmaceutical companies. And those same companies have immense sway over regulators, and that would include the World Health Organization. In fact, there's a whole documentary uh, about the World Health Organization basically being captured by the pharmaceutical 
uh, industry. So there could be quite a lot of corruption in the system, but there may be other more complex things going on as well. It's been suggested that uh, mRNA technology is seen as this great kind of panacea in medicine in the future, that one day it will transform personalized medicine. Now, look, one day in the future, that might be true. But at the moment, that's not the case. But they saw this as an opportunity to roll out this new medicine on a, on a global scale and get everyone used to taking it. Other people have suggested that actually the focus appears to be using vaccine passports as a stepping stone to having ID cards. And there are lots of governments that would love to force everybody in their country to have an ID card because it gives them more control. Other people have talked about financial instability in 2019, where we had something that was similar to the financial crisis of 2008, and that sort of was rather hidden. Uh, others have talked about the creation of a digital currency, and it's definitely the case we are moving towards the idea of a digital currency. And that, again, would give banks and governments more control over what people do with their money. And then there's a grand conspiracy theory known as the Great Reset that a lot of people have been talking about and some of you might uh, have read about. I'm not going to comment on the extent to which any of this might or might not be true. It's incredibly difficult to get really good evidence on any of these things. But what is interesting is that very early on, one or two things like vaccine passports and ID cards were mentioned by a few people. And then everybody else just said, oh, no, that's a conspiracy theory. But actually, in many countries, that has become true. So I keep a very open mind about what has actually been going on behind the scenes. OK, I think that probably is a good time to open up to Q&A and discussion. So I apologize if I've gone on a few minutes longer than usual. I think it is a topic that's worth covering thoroughly simply because for most people it is possibly so different from anything they'll have seen in the mainstream. Thank you, Rod. Uh, that's just um, an, uh, an extremely difficult subject to broach. But we've had one person leave leave the, the chat. They've been in our audience constantly. And um, I would just like to say to, to the person who left um, that it is very difficult to hear these, this narrative, an alternative narrative to the one that's been pounded into us by mainstream media, by, by, by our friends and family. And we've all been forced into this narrow corridor of you must do this. Uh, otherwise you will be fined you will be put in prison so it's it's been very difficult people losing members of their family um one is too many you know to have died of covid and for it to have been at the hands of of people with no faces you know some some unidentified pharmacological company pharmaceutical company is just absolutely terrible so i've got every sympathy with the person who left but we must talk about this mustn't we rod so i think you raise a good point then one of the things that's been really interesting is to look at all sorts of discussion groups about this where lots of people that i know have said look i looked at 
they, they could be mathematicians, they could be doctors, they could be epidemiologists. They looked at the data themselves right at the beginning and they said, hang on, this doesn't make sense. You know, this is being blown out of all proportion. And yet they've been surrounded by friends, colleagues, acquaintances who just will not engage in discussion. And this is what was very interesting, that uh, there were various websites set up where they said, can we talk about this, please? But people who bought into the mainstream narrative just seem to be afraid of engaging in a debate that might challenge their worldview. And it actually comes back to a point that I've made in earlier presentations about propaganda, whether the Carl Sagan gave this quote that I often talk about, which is, once the bamboozle has taken hold, you almost never get anyone back from it. You know, it's so difficult for people to say, okay, I got it wrong, and this sort of thing. People find it very, very uncomfortable. What is interesting is if you look at the numbers of people who took the first pair of vaccinations and the numbers of people who are taking the boosters, there is a big drop. Yeah. And so on. And I think more and more people are waking up and saying, hang on a minute. Are you saying we've got to be boosted every six months? Well, yeah. you know, they they don't like that idea. And they're starting to think, well, you know, that's that's not what we thought we were signing up for when we took the first injections. And so I think there are more and more people prepared to question. But there's still a big chunk of people who really, really don't want to ask any questions and, and they won't engage in debate. Yeah, well, when, when we re were reporting on this issue in the first beginnings of the pandemic, uh, we were we were told not to not to platform uh, certain doctors, certain people, because their narrative didn't suit uh, what what everybody what the mainstream media was saying, and so for us as editors educated people who are trying to get at the truth even we couldn't discover who was believable on this issue so i'm quite aware of how difficult it must be for ordinary people who have no training uh to, to how does it how do you see through this you can't can you there's a really good point there actually there are many other people who are well known among the circles that I move in who are very critical of war crimes, very critical of economic policies, who fell for the government's propaganda on this healthcare issue. Many of them were quite old. So the most famous one is Noam Chomsky. Now, yeah. over the years, Noam Chomsky has written so much great stuff on how the world actually works and on propaganda and so on. But when it came to COVID, I think because the elderly were vulnerable to the virus, you know, they were personally at risk. I think they found it difficult to separate out that personal threat from a more objective interpretation of what was going on. And so yeah. about half of the well-known people that I would study their work all the time online kind of bought into this narrative. And some people even running websites would shut down dissent, shut down criticism. These were the best websites for um, critical thinking on other topics, but they would not tolerate critical thinking on... Well, uh, that's, 
it wasn't exactly that because I'm the Independent Media Association. So I, I know a lot of these websites that you're talking about. It was that we couldn't get involved in the discussion about it because we couldn't discover who was verified a trustworthy source on it. And the people that we thought that were a trustworthy source on it, like Noam Chomsky, were saying exactly the opposite of what we believed to be the truth. So it was so difficult. So let's bring in Sean because I'm sure we've got we've I've seen many questions coming up on the screen. So I'm sure she's got lots to tell us. Yeah, hi, thanks, Lizzie. Um, we've again we've had lots of people commenting on this subject in the comments. Um, we're talking to Rod Driver tonight, and um I'd just like you to ask you to like and subscribe if you're new here. Um, we're live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, Kevin Rathbone says the Corbyn policy of a nationalised drug production to make the generic uh, non-patented drugs uh, we need was a was a really good idea. What do you think about that, Rod? So I'm all in favour of that. I think this is this is something that um, it's a shame it doesn't get more kind of general discussion in the in the mainstream media. Um, but I, I think we have to completely move away from the existing system. And uh, it's probably worth me saying, I, I probably mentioned this before, that it, it wouldn't just be pharmaceuticals where you would completely change the whole system because it, it's not just that industry that is so distorted by the profit motive. You know, you would also say not only railways, water, energy, and, and many of the other standard industries that people talk about nationalizing, you would also talk about the major banks and so on, that actually the profit motive in banking completely distorts the whole system. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm all in favour of uh, having uh, systems that are structured to serve society rather than serving the profit motive and executives and shareholders. Do you think yeah. if we all took our money out of the bank and put it under our beds again, do you think that would shock the system into a change? Uh, I've always wanted to ask that. I, I don't know what effect that would have. I, I have a feeling that, that that probably wouldn't be enough. This, what, the problem at the moment is... is we don't have enough money, do we? None uh, of us are billionaires. <laughs> the people who might take the money out are probably not the ones who have any sort of serious influence financially. And... Um, so I, I think there's so much. Uh, so we're moving away from the sort of main topic, but banks lend to each other to do gambling these days on the investment markets. And that that sort of dwarfs everything else that goes on. So I'm not sure that we could bring about any change simply by that sort of action. I was just going to make a comment. Uh, Jimmy Dore um, does. I don't. I think probably a lot of our viewers watch the Jimmy Dore show as well. Um, but he he regularly shows a snap of a video that he put together a, a while ago now, showing how many different news outlets on American TV that the company Pfizer actually sponsor. So. Of course, their new those news outlets because they're indebted to Pfizer as a sponsor, they have to say what they want them to say. They don't say they? the exact script, don't they? I've seen that of thirty different TV channels all saying exactly the same words. Yeah, yeah. So there's been some marvelous videos on the internet showing that the the funding issue from advertisers, but also the ownership by lots of broadcasters, by one major company, which then tells 
the, the local broadcasters exactly what they have to say, as you say, scripted word for word. And so they've played back, you know, 30 simultaneous video sequences. If people have not seen it, go and do a search. And it's absolutely fascinating to hear all of these people that you think should be saying, you know, their own words. And they're all uh, saying exactly the same things. Um, we were talking just before the show about the Robert F. K. Jr. book that he wrote about Fauci and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I've actually listened to it all on um, an audio book and it's a fascinating read. And if, if you have the time, I would recommend download it and listen to it or buy the book and read it. Um, I'm sure you'd be able to highlight quite a few sections on it. But one of the things that stood out to me was uh, a report from... Um, I, I'd say a conglomerate of uh, doctors and researchers um, who were trying to um, get the message out there that this drug called ivermectin was a, an excellent therapeutic for people with COVID if it was taken straight away. Um, I know it was something that um, all the big pharmaceutical companies put out there that there was this, um, it was a horse wormer and it was a it was a horse drug and all the rest of it ivermectin is actually um it was actually given a, awarded a nobel peace prize um because it's a it's a one it's rec, it's said to be one of the wonder drugs like aspirin is and it, it's it's a therapeutic drug for all sorts of ailments and it's often used in third world countries um which is why they think that a lot of third world countries weren't actually dying from COVID. They didn't have the huge amount of deaths that they thought they would have. And one of the snippets in the book says that this conglomerate of, uh, of doctors um, and professors were uh, trying to um, they were trying to communicate their concerns to a, um, a a researcher who was based in Liverpool University, who was tasked by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, to write a paper, allegedly, I have to say this is allegedly because I'm just going off what I can remember, um, and uh, on on how ivermectin was no good for the use in, in this um, disease and that there needed to be more research done on it. And uh, have you any idea how much money Liverpool University received for that? I have don't a guess. know. No, have I a guess, know. Lizzie, what do you think? A million. Rod, guess? Uh, well, I'm assuming it's got to be some huge number, so maybe five million? 40 million oh pounds. Oh, my God. So they got awarded 40 million pounds. For rubbishing on election. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this, this conglomerate of doctors were, were begging this guy, this, Didn't you know. did Trump get taken out over it as well? Um, yeah. <laughs> No, his was the hydroxychloroquine oh, wasn't yeah, it, yeah. that he got taken out over. Um, but there is a law in this country that says that they will not um, grant um, an emergency access to a vaccine that hasn't been licensed if there are known therapeutics available and, to treat and then what that they, illness. Then then what do they do? Bring in a bring in a an a injection that has not been through any tests whatsoever. Yeah, but this is why um, Robert uh, RFK Jr.'s theory in this, after doing all the research and talking to all the experts, is that 
obviously they were making a lot of money out of the the new vaccines which is why they were so keen not to do the research and to rubbish things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine now the other thing was um Fauci had had this drug that he'd um, been involved with patenting, patented a long time ago called remdesivir. And uh, you may have heard of that, that um, it was resurrected during the pandemic to mm. treat people with remdesivir. And um, there were a lot of doctors out there who were saying, no way am I giving my patients remdesivir. And they actually nicknamed it remdesivir because anyone who got given it passed away. Yeah. Um, and this is the same um, allegations that RFK, uh, RF, um, yeah, it's like the thalidomide, uh, disgusting well, it was, thalidomide there was a, event. There was a drug called AZT that was um, recommended again by Dr. Fauci during the um, AIDS epidemic in the 80s. Now, a lot of research that's been done since then is saying that the AIDS epidemic was caused because um, because of promiscuity um, and parties and things like that, um, transmitted diseases, um, people were, um, were, were taking a lot of antibiotics and because they were taking a lot of antibiotics um, for, for these sexually transmitted diseases, they were then um, having, uh, they were then immunocompromised um, because of this. So they were then immediately put on this drug called AZT um, and unfortunately that's when we saw a lot of people dying so there were a lot of people dying uh, in the 80s who now they're saying sadly needn't you know they died in vain they needn't have died um so you know the, this is all things that are come up in rfk's book so yeah, thoroughly um it's it's a, an eye-opener and i thoroughly recommend it um let's just go we've only got a couple of minutes left so i'll just go to one more um um question uh, the more comments really um can I, I can I just say then that um the the person that left the audience uh was was disagreeing with your point rod about how many people had died and you were talking about the amount of people that died just wanted to get this straight for for our audience looking in the future as well watching this program and thinking hang on a minute that um you said that a hundred and how many people died in the uk so in a typical year in the uk about 550,000 people die. So that's of old age. That's a million. And they said, they said it was six and a half million. So I would just like to make it clear that six and a half million people may have died of COVID across the world throughout the entire pandemic. Thank you very much. So it's worthwhile understanding the figures. So in Britain, in the first year, it was a bit under 100,000. And in the two years, the estimate is about 150,000. So that's dying with COVID. So that it may be that other illnesses actually were very significant in the death toll. But there's two other things related to um, what Sean was saying about how our medical interventions sometimes kill people because it's highly likely that of those 150,000, a significant proportion were killed by bad policy. And there are two things particularly that happened. 
One was we rolled out the vaccine in the middle of the second wave. And it looked as if initially the second wave was going to be actually a much smaller wave. And then we rolled out the vaccine and the numbers went through the roof. And it's known that giving people vaccines in the middle of an outbreak is a very dangerous thing to do because it, it does suppress your immune system. So it's highly likely that of those people who died in the second wave, a big chunk may not have died if they hadn't been vaccinated during that period. The second thing is there are all sorts of ridiculous policies, like sending old, ill people back from hospital to care homes. And then large numbers of people were dying in care homes. So it would it seems highly likely that if we'd had much more sensible policies, much more targeted policies aimed specifically at old and ill people, we could have reduced the actual death toll considerably. Yeah, um, Rod, uh, just before we go, I was just having a look at this. Um, there's, there's, there's been a big um, opposition to, to this WHO treaty, the WHO treaty. I don't know if you've heard about it. And I wondered if you could just um, maybe tell our audience about it quickly before um, the show finishes. And maybe it's something we could come back to um, on another show. So I haven't researched it in detail, but I've been sort of keeping an eye on it. So the idea is what the WHO would like is for every country in the world to sign an agreement that uh, in its most extreme form would hand power away from our democratically elected leaders to this the WHO. And they could declare a pandemic and they could tell governments, you must do this, you must do that. And that would mean, in theory, they could tell every government you must vaccinate everyone in your country. Now, a number of people have commented on this and said, well, it's not quite that extreme because the, what the WHO should be doing is advisory. But it's interesting how when you try and apply this kind of advisory concept in the real world, governments are often reluctant to contradict advisory information from these uh, authoritative bodies. But the problem is, as I mentioned, the WHO has been completely captured by the pharmaceutical industry. So there's no and Bill reason... Gates. <laughs> Indeed, yes. I actually see Bill Gates as the kind of point man for the pharmaceutical <laughs> uh, industry, if you like. I'd um, just like to say for the audience that the WHO is the World Health Organization. Um, so Sorry to interrupt. There's no reason at all why we should necessarily believe that the advice they're going to give is honest, objective, sensible uh, advice. It's far, far better to ensure that all democratically elected governments retain complete sovereignty. And if they want to say to the WHO, no, go away, we're not going to take any notice of your recommendations, that they should have the right to do that. So it's important to, we have to look at the small print and look at how this develops. Um, the yeah, I, have, is... I have put the, the links to the actual document um, from the parliamentary website on in the chat. And I've also put a link to um, a petition that's on the government website as well, saying that they mustn't sign anything without a, a referendum um, saying that we will hand over our control to the WHO. Sorry, Lizzie. No, I was going to say the problem then becomes, of course, like us at the beginning, trying to report on this issue, is that who do you who do you trust? Because the the, the voices that you ordinarily would trust 
are all of a sudden telling a completely different narrative. But well, I'm afraid we're two minutes over over time, and uh, so I think we'd better leave it there. Is there a last final word to you, Rod? Uh, yeah, so it's really for everyone to be very aware, you know, if they can exaggerate war crimes uh, or threats in, in the sort of war crimes arena and they can exaggerate other types of threats, when it comes to healthcare and so on, they can they can do exaggerated threats just as easily. And it's very persuasive and they're fine-tuning the art of manipulation and people need to be very, very aware. The data tends to be available if you go looking. So uh, just just keep questioning everything. Yeah, keep an open mind. And See you next week. Well, to Sean, uh, we must do that little bit of housekeeping. Please give us a like, follow us on YouTube, on Facebook, and please just support us if you can financially. I think our uh, payment thing has gone, but but if you can help us, please do share this video and talk about the subjects that we talk about. Thank you very much, everybody, and thank you, Rod and Sean. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody.